Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our final Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture for the year 2017. We also thank those of you who are watching the podcast of this lecture at iTunes U and streaming at the University of Arizona's Stewart Observatory website, www.as.arizona.edu. First of all, the bad news, it's cloudy. Telescope will not be open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Yes, there are plenty of empty seats down here. Come on down. You'll find plenty over here, over here. Don't be afraid. Yes. Well, until we get to the black hole, yes. All right. Also, um, if there are students here for an assignment, I am the person who will stamp or validate your assignment. I will do it down here at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Finally, I've been a little tardy in putting together the schedule for next spring. I can tell you our next lecture will be on January 22nd. It will be at the same time as the College of Science lecture series, but they're not doing astronomy. So if you'd rather hear an astronomy talk, we'll be here. Our speaker will be Jerry Selwood, and he's going to talk about spiral galaxies. So that will be on the 22nd of January, Monday. And as soon as I get the rest of the schedule put together, I'll get it posted on the University of Arizona's Stewart Observatory website. So without further ado, as I promised last week, last week, as you know, we heard about black holes from the perspective of a theorist. Now you're going to get to see hear about black holes from the perspective of an observer. And our observer is Dr. Stephanie Junot. Yes. <laughs> Stephanie is from north of the border. She received her bachelor's degree in physics from the Université de Montréal. Merci. And what we're very proud of her PhD in astronomy is from the University of Arizona. Now, after Stephanie left us, she went to France. She was at Saclay, which is one of the astronomical institutes in the Paris area. She started a postdoctoral fellow there, and then she became a staff member. And it was two years ago, a year ago, a year ago that she arrived back in Tucson in a sense, she came home. She is now a staff astronomer at the National Optical Astronomy Observatories, which are the people who run Kitt Peak Observatory. So her office is across the street from us over here. But she's one of our own. And I'm very happy for her to give a talk on the topic of black holes, galaxies, and cosmic fireworks. Stephanie. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you all for coming. Nice crowd. Uh, so speaking of Kid Peak, I was actually observing last night. It was a last-minute request from my living room, but connected to Kid Peak. So I would like to ask a volunteer. I need a volunteer. Okay, volunteer here. If I fall asleep during my talk, you wake me up. <laughs> all right. Okay. So today I want to talk about black holes, galaxies, and cosmic fireworks, but also put this into the context of recreating a little bit of our cosmic history or telling a cosmic story because that's what we do in astronomy 
we're trying to understand the history of the universe, so how the universe started and how it evolved to become what we can see now. So now we know we are on Earth in a solar system, in a galaxy, and so on. So in a sense, because we really start by knowing where we are now, we're sort of starting from the end of the story. So we know we are, we know what we're doing, we're all listening to this really interesting talk. And, however, if we try to then go back to how did it start, what happened before, how did we get here? So then we have to trace it backwards. And there's a nice trick that we can use to do that, and that's because uh, light takes time to travel. So when we look out in the universe, if we look further and further and further out in the universe, we see the universe as it was further and further and further back in time. And that's how we can make our observations in astronomy and turn them into telling the story of the universe and how it all started. But what I want to tell you in particular, oh, sorry, I was missing a picture here. Okay, so you can see this illustration here where there's a telescope, which happened to be the Hubble in this case, and you're looking at galaxies how you see them nowadays, but if we, and as I was explaining before, the further back we look, the further back in time as well we get the information from. So that's the trick we use to reconstruct the, the story. And then today I will tell you in particular about supermassive black holes, so not just any black holes, not just your average black hole, uh, and also about galaxies. So let's start with galaxies. Who here has heard about galaxies? <laughs> oh, sounds like everyone. Okay, here's a beautiful picture of a galaxy. Uh, so basically for what is relevant for today is that galaxies are, uh, well, they each have their lives, but they're made of this collection of stars, gas, and dust. They can have some kind of very intricate structure. So as a summary, galaxies used to even be called island universes because at, at first, um, astronomers used to think that our own galaxy, the Milky Way, was our universe. So when we started realizing that there were other such galaxies, they were originally called island universes. And a big galaxy can have billions of stars, some billions of stars, and the Milky Way, our own galaxy, has about 200 billion. Actually, that's why I'm kind of tired. I was counting the stars last night. <laughs> okay, but it's also gas and dust, as I mentioned, and it's also dark matter, which we cannot see, and we still don't know really what it is. But what we know is that it contributes to gravity, so all this together is all held together by gravity. So this is what's going on with galaxies. And if we look at the population of galaxies, we can see that they have different shapes, different colors, different ages. In a sense, each has its own story. So it's like here, we can say, we can tell the history of humankind, but then we can also tell the story of each person, right? So it's a bit like that. We sometimes talk, think about the galaxies as a whole, like we think of the humankind, we think of galaxies as a whole, like what really happened to them. But then if we were to zoom in and follow each galaxy, we can also see a lot of different stories. But what is interesting as a whole is that it seems that galaxies were forming a lot of stars when the universe was younger. So they were growing, forming more stars, but they were, and now they're forming fewer and fewer and fewer stars. So this is one of the current big open question in astronomy right now. We're still trying to understand why are galaxies forming fewer stars? What's going on? Are they a little bit sad? Is something like acting on them? And it turns out that maybe supermassive black holes might have something to do with it. 
We're not sure, though. Uh, so this is really still a question. So by the way, the picture in the background here, almost every single dot, even the tiny little dots, are galaxies on this picture. So they're not, I think there's like four or five stars. And you get a sticker if you can find them. Just kidding, I don't have a sticker. Um, but there's a lot of galaxies out there, and then we can see them really far away, and that's how we can see the, the story of galaxies. Okay. Someone is counting the stars. That's awesome. Okay. So now I'm going to switch gear a little bit to talk about supermassive black holes. So first of all, they are not holes. Who already knew that? Raise your hand. Most people. Okay. Uh, so they are instead an accumulation of matter concentrated in a very small volume. So it means that the matter is really, really dense. But it is normal, ordinary matter, uh, which we call baryonic matter. It's the same thing that we're made of, except it's been so dense that it's not really in the same form, but it's the same material still. Um, and you might have heard that if we were to condense planet Earth into a black hole, its size would be basically a tiny marble. So all the mass of the Earth, including everything, all of us, would be in that little marble. I don't really have one, but I don't have it right now. OK. So when I say supermassive black holes, how massive, what does that mean? How massive is supermassive? So I'm going to show you here an animation which, Okay, so what you're going to see is the position of stars around the center of the Milky Way. And at the center of the Milky Way, there is a supermassive black hole, which we cannot see the black hole itself because it doesn't emit light. There's a little kind of a white symbol that marks the position of Sagittarius A star, which is the name that we give to a black hole. And the way to measure its mass has been to trace these stars as they're doing their orbits and this has been followed up for about 16 years, I think, at the time of this. So if you observe the same stars over and over and trace the orbits, you can calculate, because of the orbits and their inclination and having a few of them, you can calculate the mass that is needed at the center of the orbit, of the smallest orbit also. So you know the mass, which happens to be 4 million times the mass of the sun. This is from calculating like this. But you also know that it has to be a small object because it has to fit inside the smallest orbit because the star is not colliding with anything, right? So it has to be small, but yet it's 4 million times the mass of the sun. So in general, we call supermassive black holes, black holes that have masses between millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. So I just mentioned that for Sagittarius A star, we're thinking it's around 4 million uh, solar masses, so 4 million times the mass of the sun, but it's only in about 17 times the size of the sun, if you think of its radius or diameter. And it would fit a quarter of the way to Mercury's orbit. So you could have 4 million times the mass of the sun all packed in that tiny little volume. Well, tiny, right? Relative, but compared to the mass. Okay. So that's what we call supermassive black holes, these big ones. And normally, supermassive black holes, they live at the center of galaxies. And typically, we find one per galaxy in or around the center. So now I'll tell you what happens when a black hole eats a star. Because sometimes, black holes get hungry. 
So I'm going to show you first a computer simulation of what you would expect to see if you could actually see the phenomenon happen. And I think it will show a number of days that, that happens after the star gets around the black hole. So it's a little star, and suddenly you can see it gets disrupted. And you can track the progression of the gas. So the black hole is like located kind of in the top left here, uh, where the material from the star is wrapping around. So a star normally is held together by its own gravity. And that's why stars are pretty spherical. It's its own gravity holding the star together. And that's pretty strong. But still, the gravity around the black hole is so much stronger than that that the whole star gets disrupted. So we actually have a, a scientific term for this. We say that the stars, they get spaghettified. <laughs> and that's what would happen also with like a rocket or a person. You know, I don't want to scare you, but don't get too close to a black hole. Uh, but black holes are not picky eaters. So what I mean by that is that they don't just wait for a star, anything around, if there's like a cloud of gas, like very hot gas even, a plasma, anything that really is so close that it cannot escape the black hole gravity, it gets added to the black hole. So the black hole is not a hole, it doesn't fall in it. It just goes to inside what we call the horizon of the black hole, and it just adds to the black hole. So we keep adding, and that's how black holes can grow. They can get more and more mass, slowly getting more mass. But also what happens is that the material doesn't just go to the black hole. At first, because there's this gravity and, a met and it, there's often a, a movement, it will first swirl around really, really, really fast. And so fast that with the friction, it gets really, really hot. And in fact, you can have just around a black hole this kind of disk of kind of gaseous material being so hot that, uh, and so bright that the, the disk of the black hole can be brighter than the entire galaxy. And that's what happens with quasars. If you've heard about quasars, that we see them far in the universe, we see these bright points of light. They're, in fact, the disk around the black hole that we see. That's what dominates. It really it blocks the whole galaxy. The galaxy is too faint compared to the black hole. Well, to the disk. OK. So this means that not only black holes are not picky eaters, but when these disks glows and are, and are very, uh, very hot, they actually start making winds, and some of the disk material goes away. So it becomes very messy. So I want to say that black holes can be messy eaters as well. So this is a, our guess illustration of a galaxy which would have a, a black hole in the center, and we don't see the black hole, but what you can see is these winds going kind of in polar direction, like a posit, uh, up and down from the galaxy disk. And these are winds uh, of material being entrained away from the galaxy, but because there's a black hole there. So the black hole is eating, meaning it's receiving material. But there's, then there's this disk that's very bright, and then that makes the mess, or the fireworks. So I was referring to these, to me, that made me think of fireworks too, because they're just coming out of the center of galaxies. This is another illustration that one would have to zoom in really in the center to see the black hole. And by the way, on this picture, the black holes seem to be kind of hiding part of the disk. Don't believe this. That's a lie. The black hole is like still a tiny point 
and then the disk is much larger compared to the black hole size. Okay, and the last thing I want to show you about this is actually a, a calculation of how this would change in time, like what happens, because also it turns out that if the black hole has this disk that's removing material, it might also remove its own food in a sense, or what we call its fuel, uh, because the wind will make the disk maybe go away. So then the black hole goes what we call dormant. So the black hole is still there, but there's just nothing around it to make a bright disk. But then eventually more material comes, a new disk forms, and then it starts again. So you can have a cycle like this. So the black hole is sometimes what we call active, so it's getting material, putting out energy, or it's inactive or dormant. So this means that if you were able to track the same black hole over a long time, like for billions of years, you could see a lot of episodes like this. So while we cannot observe a single black hole for such a long time, we can make computer simulations of this phenomenon. So what you see here is a snapshot from a simulation, and I'll show you several snapshots so you can see the progression in time. And what this is showing here is a map of the temperature of the gas. So galaxies have lots of gas, right? And this is the galaxies seen sideways. So you see the kind of darker uh, structure in the middle. So it's a case that would be a disk. So if you see the face of the disk, it's round. But if you spin it on its side, you just see it looks like a line. It's like the, the disk sees on its edge. So you just see the edge of the galaxy. And the reason we're showing the edge is because most of the action is basically up and down from that. So this is a better viewpoint to see what's going on. So I'll just flip through a few. Uh, and then, oh yeah, and then the, the color is the temperature. So the cold gas is darker color, and the light color is very hot gas. So as we, were, as we track the simulation, and there's a black hole in the center, there's a little blue cross. This is the location of the black hole. And what happens is this is an event right there. The black hole just got material, and it made this wind. And then we can track it, and track it, and track it. And there's more. Very hungry black hole right there. OK. So I just want to summarize what I was just telling you about black holes. So they're not picky eaters, but somehow they may be like spaghetti because, you know, things get spaghettified. And also, I want you all to remember that they can be messy eaters. So is computer model, oh, no, just kidding. OK. But what this also means is that Black holes are very efficient at converting mass into energy because some of the mass adds to the black hole, but the rest of the mass that gets heated um, and makes this disk, some of them is ejected back in, in form of energy, like temperature, winds, uh, or what I've been calling these fireworks. And that could be important because there's a, a real potential of affecting the galaxy. Because imagine you have a galaxy just sitting there doing its thing, forming stars, and then the black hole is starting to like throw things around, like making a big fuss, I don't know, not liking its meal on that day or something. But then the galaxy is losing that gas. So it means that maybe it can form fewer stars because the black hole, with the activity, it's kicking all this gas out away from the galaxy. So this is still a question that is open right now. And there are many studies that are ongoing. And I would say there's not a clear answer. It's rather almost more like a debate. So, um, but instead of going deep into the debate, I want to show you what we can learn if we were to focus to really learn the story of one particular galaxy. 
And I'm going to tell you about my favorite supermassive black holes. First of all, though, I want you all to promise not to tell the other black holes. Okay? So you're not supposed to have favorites. Okay. So um, we've been observing it from the southern hemisphere. It's, uh, it lives in a galaxy that's in the Grus constellation, which I didn't know about. So there it is. Uh, and also, apparently, it looks like this Gru in French, by the way, this bird. Uh, and there's a group of galaxies, four of them. Uh, you can only see three on this picture. The fourth one would be, I'm not sure if there's a basement, but it's a basement somewhere over there. Um, but this galaxy in particular here, it's called NGC 7582. It has a black hole in the center. And I started getting interested in it because it seems like that the black hole is active. So this material and this light. But at the same time, it's somehow um, hidden. There's like a lot of dust or gas or something that makes it hard to see. And then I was curious about why is it so hidden? Like what's going on in this one? And of course, you set out to do a project. Your result is a whole surprise, nothing we would expect. And now we're like, what? OK, but I'll tell you about this. It's actually pretty interesting. OK, so I was just showing you. So these, you can see three disk galaxies here. Uh, they are what we would call fairly massive galaxies. And uh, that same picture on the right side is the same three galaxies, but now you see these contours around. And the contours are showing a different kind of observation. They're showing uh, atomic gas. So galaxies have gas because that's how they form stars. The gas cools, turns into stars. Um, and normally the gas, so if we have a disk galaxy with the stars taking the shape of a disk, the gas is also in the shape of a disk. Sometimes it, it gets even bigger in the gas, which indeed we can kind of see that with the top two. But then there's something weird with this one because this what looks like a tail or something. There's like this whole structure of gas. I even have a pointer. That doesn't work. It is. Oh, it's, it's there. It's very faint. Very faint, yeah. Anyway. Uh, it's fine. I've got two more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a fight. OK. Um, well, OK, the important thing to. OK. All right. Ooh. OK. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so why is there this tail of gas? And why is it being kind of stripped away from the galaxy there? So at first, when I saw this, I, I was wondering like, if one of these two is pulling the gas, because maybe you get too close. And because gravity can do that, you can, well, we, we call this a tidal interaction. It makes like a tide. But it's like having a tide on something that is so tenuous that you can just like, elongate it. Like the gas uh, could maybe be pulled. But it's not actually the case, because if this was a big, if it's two galaxies going around each other, they both would have a tail, like in opposite direction, but they both would have one. So it's not that. So another thing that could have happened is that there's a tiny galaxy that got into this big one. And indeed, this little circle here is a tiny little satellite galaxy. So we know that this is a group. There are small galaxies. So maybe this is what's happening. So this is interesting because it could give us an explanation for what we ended up finding by accident uh, later. OK, so how am I going to study the black hole in there? And also, what's the relationship between the black hole and the galaxy? 
And we know there's an active black hole. We're pretty certain it's going to be these winds, but we don't know what really, how they're going to interact with their galaxy and whether they're going to maybe have an impact on, on this guy here. Okay, so the idea was to try to zoom in to look what's going on in the center and then look also at different scales within the galaxy. So to do this, I've been using uh, an instrument which is on the VLT, which is a very large telescope down in Chile. Did I say a joke I didn't realize? Okay. Um, so VLT is actually a series of telescopes, but one of them, so the telescope itself is eight meters across at the size of a mirror. And one of the newer instruments from ESO, the European Space Southern Observatory, it's called the MUSE instrument. And the idea is that the light comes on the telescope to this instrument, and then what this is all doing here is an apparatus to, to do, first of all, spectroscopy. So this is like taking a rainbow of the sun. So the sun is white light, and when the white light is dispersed according to colors or wavelength, we get the rainbow. Um, so we can take these spectra of the sun, but also of other stars and also of galaxies, because galaxies have our collections of stars. And why do we need such a big instrument to just take spectroscopy of a galaxy? So let me tell you a bit more, because what we end up having here is going to be a full data cube with not just one spectrum for the galaxy, but 90,000 spectra, actually, just for the same galaxy. And I'll show you after what we can do with that. Keeps me busy, anyway. So this is um, a rendition of what the MUSE instrument looks like. And this is a picture of it in real life. There's someone here with a blue helmet. Don't drop your keys in there. Never gonna find them. Okay. So I'll tell you just about one of the concepts of the instrument. So it has what is called an image slicer. So if you have the image that you're trying to take on the sky, including a galaxy, maybe with companion galaxies, uh, there's, um, with different optics, the, the trick is to start splitting it into rows and columns, in a sense. So then when you disperse the light to make a spectrum, you don't get just one spectrum. You can do it individually for each. You end up having this little square, and each one can be dispersed uh, separately. So overall, the result is what we call 3D spectroscopy, because you have the spectrum, so like the rainbow, but you have an image at each color, because you have three, well, we have 300 by 300 pixels, so 90,000. Uh, spect uh, spectra, but we can really do a lot of stuff with this because, so the spectra tell, can tell us many things. Because they have uh, what we call the fingerprints of the elements, we can see what's in the gas, like is there oxygen, hydrogen, like what, what else? Uh, but also, and I'll tell you a, a bit more later, but we can learn about the, the movement of the, of the gas and of the stars. If the gas and stars are moving around in the galaxy, we can use spectroscopy to measure this, and I will show you how in a moment. Um, but also, because we have all these, these different colors, I can then pick and choose which color I want to look at. Uh, so the first thing here, so let me show you our, our data. Um, so this is an image of the full galaxy in GC7582. And then you see this, like, this white box. This is where the MUSE instrument is looking. So it's taking this data cube in the space where this white box is here. And then the, the other image which corresponds to this box is actually the MUSE data. 
And uh, I'm not sure how well you can see on that screen. It doesn't look as good as on my screen. Oh, well. <laughs> now, I think you'll get the idea what, what I show next. Um, can you see? Can you see there's a brighter spot in the middle? Good. That's one thing. Can you see that there's a kind of red around this? Oh. Okay. What does that mean? So this is, means it's a lot of dust. So there's something very bright in the center, which could be a starburst or an active black hole or both. But there's also a lot of dust. So the light is very reddened because this is what dust uh, does. But there's also these dust lanes, which are part of the galaxy, right? So if you try to imagine this galaxy now in 3D, it means it's kind of a disk with spiral arms, but it's inclined, right? There's some angle. So that's why it looks like flattened like this here. So this means that, uh, well, this is going to be interesting to us because what I'll show you next is the gas. Uh, so I, I go back to the cube. So this is using the cube to look at the colors of the stars. So I pick a lot of colors from the stars, and I basically create this image. But then I can go back in the cube and pick just a single shade of green that corresponds to gas that's very hot because it's actually what the, the gas is seeing is this disk around the black hole. So there's a very special way. It's called, well, it's an oxygen transition, which is highly ionized. And it basically tells us where is the gas that sees the black hole, the active black hole, or the active nucleus. So it's going to be shown in green. So this is the firework that I got to make myself. It's pretty exciting. But as you can see, and you kind of almost get the impression of it, it looks like it's like shooting out, like spitting out. And indeed, with a spectroscopy, we can do the velocity of the gas. And this is also what we find. We find that this very obvious green kind of triangular shape, we call this a cone, is indeed shooting out. It's like imagine this coming toward you, basically. It's like this gas is coming toward you. But then if you pay more attention to the other side, can you see that there's a bit of green on the other side here? And can you see that the green is in between the dust lanes? Let me go back and forth to help with that. So it's basically the other cone behind the galaxy. So we're seeing it through the galaxy right now. We see gas behind the galaxy that sees the black hole, which, if that's not cool, I don't know what is. OK. So we're finding that there's this gas that, indeed, is coming from the black hole being active, uh, and that it's outflowing. It's doing this, this winds or these fireworks. Um, and normally you say, well, if by chance this gas was going to be instead going in the galaxy, maybe it would do some more damage. But now it's going kind of away from the galaxy, like in front and behind. So maybe it's not doing too much damage. But how can we learn um, more about this? So this is going to be um, how we use spectroscopy. So I'll show you in particular the movement of the stars and how that got us to find a new structure that we didn't really know about in this galaxy. So we're probing how are the stars moving in the galaxy. And the same principle also applies to see what the gas is doing. So with spectroscopy, what happens is that when you have a spectrum, you have a rainbow. Like you can see the middle one as your reference. And then if there are elements that are part of the stars, like oxygen and hydrogen and so on, you get what we call the fingerprints of the elements, which are these, these absorption lines is a technical term in the spectrum. But they make a pattern, so that's how we can recognize them. And if, so if this is for a collection of stars, let's say there's a blob of stars, 
if this blob of stars is moving away from, from us, the observer, it's like the whole spectrum is shifted to the red color. So the whole thing is shifted. We can measure that. We can see that it should be here, but you can see the pattern, a big line, two small lines. The whole thing is shifted. And conversely, if all these stars were moving toward us, the whole spectrum is shifted blue. So it's like the frequency of the light is affected by the movement. The analogy with the sound is like if you hear like an ambulance or a siren drive by, like the pitch seems to change. It's like coming toward you, going away for you. You can kind of hear the pitch changing. And that's like the similar, but for the light instead of for a sound. So we can use this because we have, uh, we have all the spectra, like I say, 300 by 300 of them, so 90,000. And each time, we can say, what's the movement of the, st the stars? Are they going toward us or away from us? Uh, so I'll show you a map of that result. So it might take a minute to just fully appreciate what it means, but take your time here. So on the right side, you see, again, a picture of the galaxy for reference. So here, the black is the starlight. And then the square is the Muse instrument field of view. And then this is a map of the velocity. So what you have to imagine now is that Red is going away from you, and blue is coming toward you. So what this means, really, this is a rotation. So the whole galaxy is rotating. So if it's rotating like this, there's always a part that's going toward you, and then the other part away from you. So we found the large-scale rotation of the galaxy, uh, which is not surprising, because typically these galaxies are always rotating. Uh, what was more surprising, though, so I'm going to show you this time velocity map, but here, it highlights where there's more light. And here, I'm just showing you just the velocity straight. So you can see a higher contrast in colors. So color red means away from us and blue toward us. But look at the center here. So the black cross is where the black hole is supposed to live. But then there's like a red, uh, red circle and blue circle here. What does that mean? We did not expect that. Um, and there are a couple of different ways to interpret it. But what I think it really means is that this is a zoom-in version here. So basically, try to imagine having a ring. So you have a disk. The whole galaxy is a disk. But then there's a ring like a donut or a bagel or something. And that whole thing is rotating in the same direction as the galaxy, so toward us and away from us, but faster. So you have a whole galaxy that's rotating at some velocity. And then there's this ring that's rotating faster in the center. And this ring is actually about. 2,000 light years across. So it's much bigger than the size of a little disk you would have around a black hole. It's about 1,000 times bigger than that. But it's much smaller than the whole galaxy. So we're like, what does it do there? So to, to summarize how we understand this now is that, um, and also, there's something I'm not showing you right now, but I can tell you about. We have reasons to believe that the black hole, which is disk, is actually pointing at us. So we have other measurements that indicate that somehow we should have the black hole with the wind coming at us more directly. But instead, we saw the, the cones at some angle going to the side and also the same to the back. So it seems like that this ring is like blocking and collimating the winds. So the black hole is shooting like right at, let's say that I'm the black hole. Ooh, I'm the black hole. Uh, and then I'm trying to like make wind this way, but then there's a big ring, and then it's like diverted on both sides of the galaxy. So the implication is pretty cool, because if that's what's happening, 
it means in some sense that that ring is protecting the galaxy from the black hole winds. Because if the winds were plowing directly into the galaxy, they would do much more damage. They would heat the gas, shock the gas, maybe remove the gas. So the galaxy could be in some trouble, you know? But savior of the day, here goes the ring. But what we think is, um, so in, in a sense, oh yeah, and we have another clue before I move on. Uh, so if, if you look at this bottom zoom-in image, so the background color is the, ro the rotation, the movement uh, of the stars. But then you can see these black contours, they trace a tiny little radio jet. So I don't know if you've heard about radio jets before, but sometimes black holes, in addition to having a disk, they also make typically these very big radio jets, like we can see very impressive pictures, like Centaurus A, for example. But this looks like a tiny little jet that's like a bit stuck in the ring. So this is something to be confirmed, and I'm actually still writing my paper. Uh, but I think this is maybe what's happening, and it's just very unusual and surprising, and we don't know how common this could be. And also to wrap up with what I was telling you before, why, why is there even a ring, you know? Like, because not all galaxies have a ring like this, and why is it spinning faster than the rest? So it could go all the way back to what I told you before, that this galaxy, there was this H1, this gas tail that indicated maybe a small galaxy got into it. So maybe that's what happened. Maybe you can have a small galaxy hitting a bigger one, and that disturbs the stars and the orbits. And you could first make what we call a bar. So some spiral galaxies have a bar. But then you can also make this ring. So it could be that you just have to throw a little galaxy at a big one, which is a common phenomenon, by the way. There's lots we call those minor mergers. So it's a merger of a small galaxy with a bigger galaxy. Uh, and, and minor mergers are not that well studied, but it could be a whole other uh, venue or phenomenon to explore to get a better understanding of what's going on really between black holes and galaxies. So I have a few takeaway messages kind of to wrap up what I've told you so far. Uh, so they can be really fast, and when I say really fast, uh, up to 10,000 kilometers per second, uh, and really hot, so probably also about 10,000 degrees, uh, winds from black holes. So, well, it's not the black hole itself, it's from the vicinity, where there's like a disk of this swirling material. Uh, but there's a lot of energy that can come out of there, including a lot of, um, of energy for either heating the gas that's in the galaxy or even pushing it away. So it means that potentially there could be a very big influence of black holes controlling the lives or the fate of galaxies. Um, and I've been telling you about this very interesting case study because it might be that we're finding some new and unusual role of the galaxy substructure. In this particular case, it's a ring. Uh, that we think the ring is made out of dust, gas, and stars. Uh, and it's about 2,000 light years across and it seems to be protecting the galaxy from the influence of the black hole. We're not sure where it comes from. I tried to ask, it didn't tell me. Um, but I want to also point out, because we can learn more in the future, because this technique of using 3D spectroscopy used to be only really applied one galaxy at a time. It would take a long time. And then, but now, people are doing this for thousands of galaxies, so we can have a lot of samples of galaxies with black holes and start looking at the motion of the gas, the motion of the stars, is there obscuration, and see all this substructure. 
So it's very exciting. So maybe I come back next year with new results. Uh, so I'll just uh, thank you now. We have plenty of time for questions for Dr. Junot. We'll start down here. You said that the black hole is baryonic matter, but how do we really know if we can't see it that it's not either dark matter or uh, some other form of? Yeah. So the black holes that there's other another kind of black holes called we we'll call them stellar black holes, and these are the remnant of a stellar explosion. Uh, so for these ones, it's pretty obvious because you have a star and it collapses, and then the core, if it's a star that's massive enough, the core can become a black hole. Um, so that we know that has to be baryonic matter. Um, there's still uncertainty for the big black holes in the sense that we don't know what are the black hole seeds. So how do they start? Do they start from a single stellar black hole? That seems like a long way to go because you have to go you know, a billion times over. Um, but there are still ways to just make it, at least in a simulation, you can make a black hole from baryons. You can have a, what is called a, a direct collapse, so a bigger a cloud of gas that doesn't even make a star. It just goes directly into a black hole, and that could only happen in a very early universe. Um, but that said, it, uh, there's also primordial black holes that could form from fluctuations, like before even stars. And I think it's possible to form some of them with dark matter. I, I suspect it's not the dominant thing, but I, we cannot say that it's impossible. We have a question up here. Yes. Uh, yes. One Canadian to another. Uh, um, when I saw the, the ring, I thought of magnetic fields. Could that be any way measured in that? Uh, so there are magnetic fields in, at the scale of galaxies, but there's also some, I think magnetic fields are more important closer to the black hole. So where the scale for the accretion disk and also where the radio jets are launched. So the magnetic field could actually play a bigger role to explain this little radio jet, but not so much for the ring, although one possibility is that the radio jet is making the ring because it's trying to shoot in the galaxy, so maybe it's like pushing the material and making a ring. So we're not sure where the ring comes from, but I don't think it's a magnetic field of the gas at that kind of scale. Yes. In the one slide, you were showing um, the green color of uh, surrounding the center of the galaxy. Yes, that one, um, which I believe represents an ionization state of oxygen. Yes. Um, have you also studied other elements, uh, such as carbon, and uh, or maybe iron or some other heavier elements? and how that uh, has something to do perhaps with uh, the evolution of galaxies, uh, what is their distribution, and also if this contributes to stellar formation. Okay, so um, we, in the spectra we have uh, some nitrogen lines, uh, sulfur lines, oxygen, we don't have carbon. Um, I don't think we have neon either. So we don't have the full suite, especially for that we don't have the super high ionization lines. I think maybe the oxygen one is the highest. Uh, however, that said, I did not show it in this talk because I was focused on the black hole. But 
there's a whole map of the rest of the galaxy where we can see uh, hydrogen and nitrogen, and that tells us the, the, the chemical composition of the gas in, in there. And it, so I can tell you, for example, that this galaxy is pretty metal rich. So it's not like a galaxy that has only like the light elements. There's already some enrichment. And we can also trace that these like clumps of star-forming regions that have more of these elements. So we can indeed apply the, this technique um, across the rest of the galaxy as well. It just happens that the doubly ionized oxygen is very sensitive to black hole ionization. And it's only sensitive to low metallicity gas, but we don't have much, like there's like a little tiny part here. There's almost nothing in this one galaxy. So it really stands out from the, the center. Yes. I have two questions. Um, could the accretion disk get hot enough to achieve nuclear fusion? And if you were in the Equasar galaxy, could you see the gas being blown out? Those are my questions. Okay, so the, um, the first one is if the gas gets hot enough to make nuclear fusion. So the gas can get really hot. It can basically get to the same temperature of a star, but um, maybe not the core of a star. So I, th I think not quite enough for that then. Um, what is interesting though, which is not your question, but I'll just say it because it's, it's kind of related. Um, normally the galaxy where this gas is also dust, it's all, all mixed in, but very near the quasar or very near the disk, because the temperature is so hot, the dust sublimates. So we end up having this gas with no dust grains because the dust grains, the temperature is just too high for the dust grains to survive. And then your other question, was about the, if we could see winds from quasars? Yeah. You could see the wind blowing out. Yes. Yeah. And the answer is yes. Uh, and actually, some people have even used that same technique with 3D spectroscopy. And quasars were more common at larger distances, at higher redshift. So that's where they had to look to, to see the quasars, and they can find these, these winds. Uh, and they can even say more than what I've told you, because they can find that the winds have this hot gas but there's also even coal gas that's entrained in the winds, which is kind of interesting because the coal gas is really what it turns into stars. So. We have a question here. Is there a, a possibly a distribution of random sized black holes in, say, a typical spiral galaxy that, if they existed, could explain away the need for dark matter? Um, so. There's one idea that was revived recently because of the LIGO result that found with the gravitational waves, these black holes of masses, about 30 uh, solar masses and such. These are, can be made by stars, but we expect them to be pretty rare. So that revived the whole conversation about what about primordial black holes? And can there be enough of them to explain dark matter? So the question was just revived like in the last year or so, I would say. I don't think we can conclude on it yet, but I don't think we can also discard it either. We have a question here. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, by studying the scattering of light by the dust, are you able to determine the diameter of the dust? And if so, how, what is the diameter in, in microns? Um, so I don't have, so this kind of data is not probing that quantity. So what you need to do if you want to see light that's being scattered off of dust is polarimetry because the light will become polarized. And this tells you typically about the alignment of the dust grains. 
and it could be a magnetic field, and the dust grains are aligned along the, those lines, and then the light will be polarized a certain way. And, um, and that's really is a very important result that concerns these massive black holes um, that typically they used to be classified into two categories, type one, type two. Have you heard, I don't know if anybody has heard about this, but what that meant is like, if you see the disk of the black hole directly, it's type one, because when you have two things, what do you do? One, two, right? Okay. So, uh, and these, when you take a spectrum of these type one, they have these very broad lines. So because uh, the, I told you about the blue shift and red shift, so if you see all the movement of the whole, because it's really fast around the black hole, so it means you get very blue and very red, so all the lines are way bigger. But if that same disk is on its edge, and then there's like dust in front, then you can't see that. So then you don't, if you take a spectrum, you only see narrow lines. So then it's type two. It's not type one, it's different. Um, but what was interesting, and that um, kind of led to a, the development of this model with the inclination of the disk, that people looked at, if you take a type two, so you don't see the broad lines, but you look at the polarized light, so that's the light that's reflected on the dust grains, like what you're asking, then you can see broad lines in the polarized light. So you can see that the disk is like bouncing to, this, to the, the dust and then going to the telescope. So you see it being reflected, but not directly. And that's why people came up with this idea. It's called a unified model of active nuclei because it's the same thing with different orientation, what would explain the different spectra. Long answer. What were yes. the influences that brought you to astrophysics, and in particular, black holes? Where do I start? Um, so I was doing my undergrad in physics before I knew anything about astrophysics. And then I did a summer internship um, in astronomy. I moved across Canada, all different place. And then I had this internship that happened to be looking at black holes in nearby galaxies. That was like my first contact with astronomy, basically. So I was, you know, still learning English trying to read about this complicated like black hole physics stuff. And also, I remember my advisor at the time, so I was like a first year undergrad, and he was saying something like, yeah, this person tried to do a PhD to try to understand why only some black holes are active and others are not. He failed, he couldn't answer the question. I'm like, ooh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so there you go. We have a question right down here. Yes. Uh, why does the disk well, why does the gas form a disk around the black hole and not a sphere? So that has to do with the conservation of angular momentum, is the physical answer. Uh, so which means that when the material comes in, it's not coming directly like a radial orbit. It has some kind of spin already, and the spin is conserved. It's like this is the same thing with, you know, with the figure skaters that do the thing with the arms. That's angular momentum that's conserved, so that's, that's why it makes a disk. Yes. Yes. Or quesadilla, depending what you like. Yes. In the oh. evolution of a star, the black hole is its, I guess, final stage. Um, do black holes ever, I guess, in very, very broad terms, go away, or do they continue to stay black holes and continue to get smaller and smaller as they consume less and less mass, so there's nothing less, less around them? Well, so they don't lose mass unless you get into the detail of like Hawking's radiation and stuff like that. But if you, in principle, it's just the, mat the material gets added to the black hole 
And when there's no new material, it just stays where it's at, basically. Now, because nothing can come out of the black hole by definition, especially this like event horizon, and what's inside is just like bound together to stay there. Uh, and then black holes can grow by getting a little bit of material, or you can have black holes merging together. And then there's a bit of a, of a loss, because with the merging, there's some energy that is dissipated in gravitational waves. So like the, the mass of the resulting black hole is a bit smaller than the two masses of the separate black holes. So if you have like a 20 and a 10, you don't get 30. You might get like 28 or something. Question up here. Yes. You mentioned that fewer and fewer stars are being formed. Is that indirect evidence that the universe is heading towards an entropy death? Well, I think the, I think that's the same as what people also call sometimes the heat death of the universe. And that's, I think it's separate because that's more to do with the expansion, the nature of the expansion of the universe. If, it's, if the expansion is accelerated or constant or slowing down. The fact that galaxies form fewer and fewer stars, uh, we also know they have few, fewer and fewer gas available because a lot of the gas is already now locked into stars. Because if you think of it, you start from a universe where you just have a lot of gas, and then you just keep turning gas into stars. So some stars, when they die, they can do supernovae, they can release new gas, but you don't replenish the full reservoir. So eventually, you're just kind of running out of gas. And when astronomers, oh, <laughs> that was kind of funny. It's by accident. Um, and, but astronomers are still trying to understand this because they're like, is it really just slowly running out of gas or is there something faster than that? It's like they would still have some gas, but somehow the black hole is making the gas too hot. And there are some cases like that, actually, that they have a lot of gas and they're forming like barely any stars, but yet they have this gas. So like, what's going on? Like, not sure. I have a question up here. Yes. Excuse me for being so elemental. But I understand black hole is an area where yeah, matter is so dense that nothing can escape it. Has anybody ever come up with a theory or why this happens? Um, so it's, ha. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can, to maybe help understand that, I can tell you about something that's not quite as extreme as black hole, but that's kind of on the way to be denser material, and it's uh, neutron stars. So normally, stars in baryons, we have like atoms that are made out of, so the nuclei are proton and neutron, but then there's the electron around the atoms, right? So the atoms are mostly vacuum because the electrons take a big volume, and then the, the nuclei are pretty small with the protons and the neutrons together. But what happened in a neutron star is that it's massive enough that the gravity gets stronger than the normal repulsion between electrons and protons. So normally you can't really squish an atom because um, there's like the balance with the, the charges. But in the neutron star case, it's basically every proton with an electron get together and they make another neutron instead. So this is, not only the matter is a bit more extreme than compared to what we, we see here. Like if you were to have like a little dice of neutron star, it would basically be, well, not quite the same weight as the Earth, but not too far. It would be very crazy. Oh, no, I think it's more like a big ship, right? Yeah. yeah, I think if you take a little dice worth of neutron stars, like if you had the weight of a big ship. So, and then black hole is like the next more extreme case than that. 
which I can't really imagine in my head, so I can't describe it super well. But, but it's like a state of matter that it's like the gravity starts to win over other forces that normally would make the atoms like keep a shape. Yes. In an early slide, you mentioned that black holes were very efficient at converting mass into energy. I see a lot of interact conversion between potential and kinetic energy here, but can you explain the mechanism by which mass is converted into energy here? Uh, so this is, well, okay. The conversion comes from computing how much mass of material is added or going on its way to the black hole but only a fraction actually adds to the black hole, and the rest, because a new radiation is created from that. So there's like a, you know, E equal MC squared, a typical thing. So instead of having um, like the full mass that gets converted to the black hole, a fraction of it is, escapes in, under the form of light. So it's, it's like a fraction. It's not the whole, it's not turning all the mass into light. It's turning a fraction of it. Uh, a little while ago, a gentleman over here was talking about dissipation of black holes. I haven't heard the word Hawking radiation, the dissipation of black holes. Yeah, I, so I mentioned this, and people um, have been discussing that it could, be, it could lead to evaporation, I think is how people normally refer to this when they talk about the Hawking's radiation. Um, I'm not sure, what was your question about that? It was actually, you didn't talk about Hawking radiation. Right. And I think maybe that's a question for our theorist from last week. Because again, we don't know if it's true. We don't know if it's true. It, right. It's a, it's a, it's a theory. It's but a, right. That, you know, do black holes last forever? Or can they convert into something else? But I don't know of an observational test. One of the problems that we have with our friends in the theory world is sometimes they can come up with wonderful ideas but it isn't very useful to the observers if there's not a way to test them. I want to ask the final question. Do okay. our X-ray astronomer friends, have they found an X-ray source in NGC 7582? Yes, and it's variable. Ah. And it has variable obscuration. Does that tell you something about the size? Does that match the size of your yeah, ring? Yeah, it means that there's obscuration also at small scales. Okay. So the ring is not doing the full obscuration because it's sometimes in technical term, comes in thick, so like very heavily obscured, okay. sometimes not. Okay. But that's on small scales. Excellent. All right. Thank you all for coming out tonight. We appreciate it. <laughs> I wish, on behalf of the director of Stewart Observatory and those of us who work at Stewart Observatory, we wish you all a happy holiday season, a happy new year, and hopefully we'll see you again on January the 22nd. I'll stamp student assignments down here. Take care, everyone.